For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have two interviews that we're excited to share with you, and there's no news from the team. Holiday break, but we'll be back on January 7th with a brand new episode with the whole crew back together. First up, I talked to DA Rachel Rollins. Rachel Rollins is the first woman to hold the office of Suffolk County DA and the first woman of color to serve as a Massachusetts DA. She is the DA that represents Boston. Then I talked to the team behind the new PBS documentary series, College Behind Bars. It is an incredible series. Let's go straight to these interviews. First, my conversation with District Attorney Rachel Rollins. DA Rollins, uh, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. I'm so excited to be here, DeRay. You are the first woman of color to ever serve as a DA in Massachusetts. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And the first woman ever in Suffolk County. We have 11 different counties in Massachusetts, and there's never been a woman in this one. That is wild. And Suffolk County is Boston and a couple other places, right? Absolutely. Chelsea, Winthrop, and Revere. But for the rest of the world, it's Boston to most people. Yeah. (laughs) Now, before we talk about the DA role, I know that sports was really important to you in the way you thought about the world before this role. Can you talk about the influence that sports had on your life and the way that you thought about moving in the world? Yeah, for sure. Like, I remember vividly where I was when I heard Mike Tyson lost for the first time. That was not a good feeling. I remember vividly where I was when I heard UNLV beat Duke by like 30 points, which felt like 3,000 points. I remember that vividly as, as well. But Growing up, I'm the oldest of five children. My dad clearly wanted a boy, (laughs) and I was raised watching Boston sports and being told over and over again I could do anything I ever wanted to do or be. And I was fortunate enough to be athletic and fortunate enough to, um, one of the things I'm proudest about is I've been elected captain of virtually every team I've ever played on. And so I was very good at a sport called lacrosse and very big, uh, certainly in the Northeast, and then Maryland and other teams have great lacrosse programs as well. And I got a full ride to go to college. And after um, my freshman year, they cut the women's lacrosse, volleyball, and tennis teams, and they honored my scholarship. So I was like, oh, yay, I don't have to do any workouts anymore, and they're going to pay for me to go to school. But you realize just how wonderful it is to have camaraderie and what teammates do for you. And when you're working together for a goal, and not just to mention the the sort of physical health, wonderful things that happen. But when we realized our men's football team hadn't won a game in years, and they didn't lose a single scholarship of their 75 full scholarships for their wildly mediocre, if not worse, football team, but the three women's teams that had successful seasons had been stripped of their whole existence, we got a lawyer and we challenged that decision with the Title IX lawsuit and ended up getting all three teams reinstated. And that showed me just how important lawyers are. Uh, And it was that day that I knew I wanted to be one. What was law school like for you? 
So I remember taking tax law because I'm like, ooh, I'm going to learn how to do my taxes. And then I was like, they didn't teach me anything about my taxes, right? So law school was, a, a you know, you are required to go to law school in order to be a lawyer. Um, I was, I'm a hustler, DeRay, where, you know, I worked for the Celtics while I was in law school. I did all of the things I wanted to do to make me a better person. I did some clinics, some domestic violence clinics. I took some some classes where I learned how to be a trial lawyer, but I essentially did it so that I could start hopefully changing the world. And you know, what I'm frustrated about with the law school, I think they're becoming much better now is they don't teach you real skills that you need, right? Like many of these wonderful schools that have clinics will actually allow you in Massachusetts, it's called a 303 process where under the guidance of a of a licensed lawyer, you can actually stand up and, you know, help people in court. And so what's wonderful is my law school, Northeastern University School of Law, shout out to Northeastern, has a great program where you co-op. And in order to graduate, you go to law school for one full year, and then you do three months of school, three months of a job three months of school, three months of a job, back and forth and back and forth so that you actually graduate with real life experience, which allows you, I believe, personally to be a much better lawyer. Boom. You also worked at the Massachusetts Port Authority. And I'm just fascinated with, are you randomly an expert now on like a subset of things transportation related or were you doing like legal things that didn't necessarily build your skill set in the actual sort of nuances of, of transportation? I just was fascinated by it because I, every time I go to an airport, I'm annoyed and I'm like, I want to know so much more about the way airports are managed and subways and transit yeah. systems. So basically, I'm the black female John Candy from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Remember that movie? <laughs> You're too young to know that. And the best line of that movie is, those aren't pillows when his hand is somewhere. But anyways, look look it up. You'll laugh later. Um, but yeah, so I was the, the chief legal counsel at Massport. I was also the general counsel at the Mass Department of Transportation, as well as the general counsel at the MBTA, which is our sort of train and bus uh, system. And yes, I mean, they're essentially, DeRay, they're small cities, right? Massport had a fire department. It has a state police troop. It has its own police department. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It has approximately 1,500 employees of its own. But in order to get onto the airport premises, we badge upwards of 18,000 people. And you have to realize like that Tom Hanks movie where he lived in an airport forever. Airports, you know, you have Dunkin' Donuts, you have food, you can get pedicures, you can buy bags, you can do anything there. But also some really terrifying things can happen. We had a lot of active shooter drills that we had to be compliant with. And sadly, while I was at Massport, we had, you know, in airport terms, a small fatality because only seven people died. Um, it was a small private jet at one of our facilities. But, you know, you can have real tragedy that happens there too. So you're a jack of all trades when you work in transportation because it you'd think, for example, it's it's an airport, it's a port. So we have cruise ships that come in. We've had to deal with dredging the Boston Harbor. Um, but we're also a large landowner. Um, we're one of the largest owners of land in downtown Boston in the seaport area. So we had to be experts in real estate. It was just a wonderful opportunity for me to hone a lot of different skills that I hope are useful in the current position that I have. 
you had done a lot by the time you ran for DA. I am assuming you could have done other things. You didn't have to do this. Uh, yeah. Why this role and, and why did you think it was a lever for change? And do you still believe the things about the role now that you're in it that you did uh, while you were running for it? So real talk, the entire reason why I said I'm going to run is the world has changed so much now. As a 48-year-old person, I remember vividly dating. Um, he was then my boyfriend, now, my, you know, became my husband, now my ex-husband, too much information. But nonetheless, when we started dating, he had a pager, right? Like I used to have to wait for a page from him and then he'd go to a payphone to call me back. Right now in the world that we have, you can look at your phone and feel like you're in Ferguson. You can watch what it is that's happening in real time with respect to many of these horrific encounters, criminal encounters between law enforcement and our communities. And when I say our, I mean overwhelmingly poor and overwhelmingly black and brown communities. And so I was just so tired of seeing you know, body after body after body on the ground and no charging decisions made by the DA. And I was also tired, DeRay, of of the fact that our people, and I mean our people like American people, they didn't understand the power the DA had and the role the DA plays. And, you know, here in Massachusetts, we call it DA. Sometimes it's called Commonwealth's attorney. Sometimes it's called state's attorney. But we all have the same power. The local prosecutor's ability to decide whether or not they're going to invest, forget about charge, let's just say investigate the death, the killing, um, the homicide in some circumstances of a young person or a person that comes in contact with the police. And what I need to say out loud is the police are the only branch of our government, federal, state, local, national, anyway, that can take your life, literally, in an instant without any oversight. And then we get to look back and recreate what happens to see if it was appropriate or not. When the RMV, the Registry of Motor Vehicles, if there was a racist working there that you didn't get to get your license for two weeks, you could be pissed off, excuse my language, but you'd get your license ultimately. You could write a sternly worded letter and maybe that person would be reprimanded or moved somewhere else, but you could still get your license. Or if the IRS had somebody, for example, you might have to pay a fine and ask for a refund. But this is bigger than that. Law enforcement has weapons that they are issued and they can take our lives. And so when I thought of all this, rather than raging at a television and yelling alone in my home, I said, shut up and do something. You're qualified for this job. Think long and hard about how you're going to get it and then do it and change a system and I like to remind people, people love to say it's a broken system. No, it is not, DeRay. It's working exactly the way it was set up to do. And we need to dismantle it from the inside. You know, I can only imagine uh, that there's some people. So I want to talk about what, what does that even look like? What does it mean to dismantle from the inside? A lot of people only think about DAs as people who prosecute and put people in jail. We hear people in your role talk about discretion, but I think people don't really know what that looks like in terms of how to impact their lives. And then, you know, I know that you have had some critics within the criminal justice community in Suffolk County and Boston specifically. What is that like? What is it like when judges are like, no, you're wrong, or the police are like, you are just encouraging violence in communities? How do you respond to those things? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing that has to happen from the inside it's a culture change, right? So mass incarceration, 
the war on drugs, all of these things that happened, we were fed a false bill of goods. And now that we have data to show that, or even the words of very people that were involved in making those decisions saying that it was falsely proclamated or intentionally targeted at certain communities, now what are we going to do now that we know that? So as a leader of my 350 approximately or 300 plus employees, what does culture change look like? And that's really what my program at Harvard Business School was about is how do you shift culture? This isn't a cult, right? And I don't want to lead in a way that people are terrified. I do want people to buy into what it is we're proposing. And so what I did, DeRay, is I issued a memo a 60-plus page document that's almost like my vision board of what I look at the criminal justice system being. It's like our standard operating procedures in order to work in, in the office. And I broke things down really comfortably, and I wrote it as though my 15-year-old daughter was going to read it. You know, as lawyers, we love pretending we're smarter than everyone. We love using huge words. Some people like making people feel inferior Um, And that way we justify our existence and our high billing rates. But for me, of my 300 plus employees, only half of them are lawyers. The other half that make our office work just as well and we couldn't function without them are admins and investigators and victim witness advocates, data specialists, you know, licensed clinical social workers that I've now hired, technologists, people with public health and public policy backgrounds. I wrote this memo so that everyone and our community could understand what it was that I was proposing. And, you know, what I find really fascinating is people have had a really, you know, strong, visceral sort of reaction to me, but I'm exactly who I told them I would be. As a candidate, DeRay, I put up that list of 15 charges that in the first instance I wouldn't put people in jail for or even prosecute them on. I never changed it from the moment I won my primary on September 4th and even when I won my general on November 6th. And then when I got into office, I put I memorialized it in this memo with actual real data and facts and articles and other examples of amazing lawyers around the country like Marilyn Mosby and Kim Fox and Larry Krasner and others that were doing this, Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn, that were already doing this stuff and it was working. And then, you know, I'll just end with, as a 48-year-old Black woman, I'm used to people questioning everything I do. So when the police and and judges say it's not going to work, I think my frustration or being super naive was not understanding that the media is deeply involved in the narrative that is portraying this falsehood, right, of progressive prosecutors don't care about victims, they're not going to keep us safe, when in fact— I care more about victims than many of the, you know, conservative prosecutors. They never even speak to victims. I want victims to know all of their options, and I want them to be involved in the decision-making process. So I love saying, judge me by my enemies. A lot of these people that are not happy with what I'm doing benefit with the system working the way that it does, and change doesn't come easy. So I didn't run for this position to make friends. I ran to make change. Boom. I was reading about the Boston Municipal Court judge who disagreed with you about the prosecution of counter-protesters of the straight pride parade. And can you talk about where that is now and like what happened for people that don't know that that happened, uh, this back and forth between you and the judge? 
Yeah, total annihilation, um, not of me, of him, I would say. So basically, what I find fascinating about me becoming the first female DA in the history of Suffolk County and the first woman of color um, in the history of the Commonwealth is no one had a problem with prosecutorial discretion when we were on a freight train going 600 miles an hour toward mass incarceration. No one ever questioned all 6,000 white men that were making those decisions, right? With gray hair, just continually making decisions about communities they weren't a member of, they didn't have any lived experience in, and they loved talking for and about with no voices from those communities surrounding them. But miraculously, when I win, and remember, I'm elected, right? And say, whoa, 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 let's slow this process down. Miraculously, that's when the police and judges by the way, DeRay, neither of whom are elected. The commissioner is appointed by a mayor and the judges are appointed by a judicial nominating commission that the governor puts together. So you just have to know one person to be a judge, the governor, or one person to be the commissioner, the mayor. Whereas I had to get 185,000 votes to win my seat. They have so many problems with a woman and a black woman at that saying, let's slow this down for a moment and look at this a little bit differently. Now, miraculously, everyone wants to question prosecutorial discretion. And so what's interesting is we had some protesters like we've had in the past. And, you know, I know Prost, which is a choosing not to prosecute a few of the individuals. And it's not even a request to the bench, DeRay. That's the thing that's so fascinating about null process. It's not a motion to null process. It just is. You know how in the Matrix, like, there is no spoon? Like, null process just are entered. It is the prosecutor's sole discretion to decide what he or she is going to use their limited resources to prosecute on. So the police arrest, and then they hand it to the prosecutor to say, all right, we've done all this hard work. Now go forward and charge this person. But it's us, DeRay, that has to stand up and say, hmm, this police report has no probable cause in it, or there's no evidence supporting what it is they're saying. I'm the one that has to stand up and look in front of a judge and potentially a jury and meet my burden. So I have discretion as well to say, you know what, this is not something I want to spend our time on, or we don't even believe you had probable cause in this circumstance. So if we make those determinations we enter something called a null pros with the court and the court doesn't accept it or reject it. It just is. We hand it and then it's over. What happened in this circumstance is a judge said, no, you're going to arraign this. And my assistant district attorney was like, uh, your honor, um, no, you know, we aren't. But remember, it's a young lawyer in front of a very experienced judge. And remember, DeRay, most judges are what? They're former prosecutors. And so why they don't like what I'm proposing is they have to look in the mirror and say to themselves, was I wrong 20 years ago when I was charging all these black and brown kids in Roxbury and Dorchester and Mattapan and overcharging them and holding them on bails that I knew they couldn't afford even before they got an opportunity to be found guilty. So this is pretrial detainment. Was I wrong? Was I racist? Was I thoughtless? Was I callous? Nobody wants to look internally and make those decisions. It's easier to just vilify the person that's saying that really loud. So 
what ended up happening was the judge refused to accept, which he didn't even have the authority to do, but our null process and made us arraign, meaning move forward in the process and give this person a criminal record, an individual. And I immediately said, no, we're filing an emergency petition in Massachusetts. It's called a 211-3. And we filed it and we won very quickly. And in a beautiful decision, the single justice of the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts said, dating back to 1806, prosecutors have the ability to null pros. And in courtrooms all across the Commonwealth, this is happening as we speak. And then I also went so far to Ray as to ask for an expungement. So the individual that was arraigned, because remember, once you're arraigned is when your criminal record attaches to you. I said, not only do you tell this judge he was so wrong that why are we wasting our time, but also please expunge the record of the individual that he inconvenienced with this nonsense. And so we won both of those things. And right now the judge is being investigated for bad conduct by a judicial commission, not as a result of me filing anything. I'm not, you know, I don't have to icky shuffle after we win. Like I just, when you score a touchdown, you place the ball down and you run back to start playing again. You don't have to victory dance every time. What are some things that you've been most proud of in your role? Oh, man. Yeah. So I'm really proud of the memo. Um, We memorialized all of the things that I want our office to believe in. It's very easy to say things, but unless they're in writing, people can't hold a me accountable and I can't hold my staff accountable. We sued ICE. I'm one of two DAs in Massachusetts that filed a first in the nation lawsuit against ICE. ICE was coming in and arresting people and civilly arresting them to Ray. So a lot of people don't understand the distinction. If the police arrest you and it's a criminal arrest, they have to bring you in front of a judge in order to have a neutral person determine what it is you were charged with and make a decision. And the entity that arrests you has to stand there and defend their behavior. And then you get the ability to have counsel with you to defend what it is you were doing or saying, no, they were wrong. They violated my constitutional rights. When a federal agency arrests you civilly, they don't have to bring you anywhere. They literally can take you And we don't even know where you are. It's like you disappear into thin air. So what was happening was people were coming into our courthouses to do things like file restraining orders um, against, you know, a partner that was abusive or asking their loved ones to be sectioned. And in Massachusetts, DeRay, what that means is if you have a loved one that has a substance use disorder or mental health issue and you, you know, you love them, but they need help. In Massachusetts, our legislature has done excellent, beautiful things where you don't get a criminal record, even though they go in and they physically take you out, but you get the help you need without the brand of a criminal record. We've even had people, DeRay, who were witnesses in a homicide um, that were testifying and during a break were deported, right? So I firmly believe places like churches, schools, and hospitals as well as courthouses, are places where people should be comfortable telling the truth and showing up. 
And what I love saying out loud is ICE keeps this false narrative of we're protecting the community when, in fact, you are chilling the judicial process. You're making people fearful of showing up at court. You're telling people who are witnesses to violent, serious crimes they are hiding and sheltering in place, and that doesn't keep us safe. That doesn't help me keep the constituents, the residents, and the uh, citizens of Suffolk County safe there. I'm also really proud I created a discharge integrity team. It's the first one in the country where in Suffolk County, rather than having the very prosecutors that walk into court every day with these police officers investigate when there's an officer-involved shooting, I have a group of outside experts that, you know, myself and the four of them, we are presented to, we don't even meet in my building, and we get to shape the investigation, which way it's going, all the documents we see, and then ultimately, with the help of my discharge integrity team, I alone make the decision as to whether or not we're going to charge a police officer uh, when they discharge a weapon and seriously injure or kill an individual I get to make the decision whether we're going to charge them criminally or whether we're going to find that the shoot was reasonable and non-criminal. And just a few weeks ago, we charged a state trooper with two felony counts that pulled out an MR-15 and shot somebody on a quad that was riding, you know, recklessly on a highway. I'm really proud of our discharge integrity team, first in the nation to have that. And then the last thing we just announced was PUSH, a project for unsolved Suffolk homicides. First time in the nation, DeRay, where every one of my employees is going to be involved in helping to solve unsolved homicides. We're going to clean up our internal house. So most other states' attorneys, DAs, Commonwealth attorneys, they have an unsolved homicide unit, and there's one lawyer in it or maybe an in one other investigator, or if you have a huge unit, like maybe Kim Fox in Cook County, Chicago, she might have more than one or two lawyers, but it's just a very small handful of people that are responsible for this group of unsolved homicides. In Suffolk County in Boston, we have over 1,300 unsolved homicides dating back to the 60s. And what I wanna do is have all my non-lawyers, we're gonna do an administrative review, We're going to have all of our files cleaned up. And then remember, DeRay, grand jurors and jurors are overwhelmingly not lawyers. If I've hired these people and they can call a victim or a witness, if they can review a file or make a copy of an autopsy report, then they're capable of answering 30 or 40 questions after reviewing every document in that file to see what it is the status of this file is. And then they're going to hand it off to a lawyer. And then we're going to determine whether or not we're going to ask a detective in the Boston Police Department to look into it. But we are really fully committed to letting families know that we remember. I look at these not as files. Each one of them is a human being whose life was stolen from them. Is addiction something you can impact in your role or is addiction something that you have to partner with another part of government because it's really their responsibility? Can you do anything about addiction? Of course. I mean, we are taking the opioid crisis on head on. Unfortunately, uh, Massachusetts is one of the top 10 places in the country uh, with respect to opioid deaths. 
right now we're realizing just yesterday a federal judge in, in Philadelphia determined that safe injection facilities did not violate a federal uh, substance control act. So a lot of U.S. attorneys are saying to governors or mayors, if you have a safe injection site in your city or town or state, I'm going to prosecute you, right? Or I will shut down that facility because the federal law says you can't administer federal drugs or drugs in a location there. An Article Three judge, it's called. So a U.S. District Court judge in Philadelphia just said, nope, I disagree. Safe injection facilities do not violate the Substance Control Act. That prompted DeRay, our U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, Andrew Lelling, a former colleague of mine, saying, well, Massachusetts, if you do it, I'm going to prosecute you. And what I've said out loud is our governor, who has a great heart and put together an advisory team on the opioid crisis, and that advisory group told him we should pilot a safe injection facility, and Andy Lelling said I'd prosecute and our governor immediately backed down. I've said out loud many times that we need a steel backbone. And if I were governor, I would have said to Andy Lelling, okay, Andy, that's your point, but the next time I get a call about a family or a person who we found that OD'd and died, I want your personal and your home number. I'm calling you and I'm picking you up and you're going to ring that doorbell with me and tell that family that their loved one died. DeRay, we are in a situation right now where it is at a crisis level. People are dying in the streets. So we need bold leadership and we need people to think creatively about a problem um, that's been inflicting harm on different communities. And, and there's not a single community that's immune to this. I'm going to say two more things. This touches home to me personally because I'm the guardian of two of my nieces. Um, so I have lived experience with this and I know all the collateral consequences that these drugs can have. And I just want to wait for a moment to make sure that people hear when we say um, this touches everyone. But the type of leader I also am is whenever I talk about the opioid crisis, I say as loud as I can to as many white people that can hear. When this was crack cocaine and it was the 80s and 90s and our people were dying in the streets, you didn't care when it was our families. You wanted us incarcerated. You wanted us out of sight. But miraculously, now that it's your kids and your nephew or your wife or husband or grandfather or grandson or some senator or governor's child, now it's the health crisis. And we're talking about legitimately safe injection facilities where people can go and use a criminal substance to inject while medical professionals make sure they live through this process. Oh, how wonderful it is to be wealthy and white, right? Like, this is who I am as a leader. If we can't have people that say that out loud, this is why we aren't solving homicides. This is why we have low solve rates and non-fatal shootings, because elected officials shy away from controversial statements. And honestly, DeRay, this isn't even controversial. It's a fact. And unless we have leaders that say that and call out hypocrisy, we are going to continue to have the divide between law enforcement and certain communities. Now, where I'm different is we're going to marinate in that uncomfort for a little bit, and then we're going to move on and we're going to make sure that we do consider safe injection facilities because it's the right thing to do. But we're going to remember we should have done this 
you know, multiple decades ago when it wasn't just wealthy and privileged white children that were hurting, when it was other people as well, right? So that's what we're doing in Suffolk County. I'm very, very proud of it. And I will continue to be a person who speaks truth, no matter whether it makes people uncomfortable or not. Boom. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, uh, DA Rollins on Pod Save the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to stay up to date with what you're doing. I am a friend of the pod. Thank you, my dear. Be well. And now we're talking to the team behind PBS's College Behind Bars and somebody who is in the documentary. We discussed the docuseries because I hosted the talk back in Baltimore where I saw the first of the clips. Incredible. Must watch. Let's go. Everybody, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about your new movie and to talk about the program. Let's start with uh, what is the program and why why movie? Sarah Botstein and I made a documentary called College Behind Bars about incarcerated students who are getting college degrees in a program called the Bard Prison Initiative, which operates in New York State in six prisons. It's a fully accredited degree-granting program where students get either associate's or bachelor's degree. I think you can read a lot about prison. You can read a lot about higher education in prison. You can read a lot about criminal justice reform in a book or an article or listen to something on the radio. But to bring cameras into a world that very few Americans get to see, even if you have relatives or loved ones who are incarcerated, you get to see them in the visiting room in very controlled environments. And when Lynn and I were first invited to do a guest lecture in the BPI program after our Prohibition film came out, we were so struck by not only the educational rigor that was going on in the classroom, but the landscape that that was set against that we thought, well, what do we do? We make documentary films. What does that mean? A camera can come in. And what would it look like if we really tried to show the world what's going on? Yeah, I, if I may, I think that film has the pop, the the power to impact the world. And one of the reasons I'm, I, I agreed to be part of this uh, project. You know, notwithstanding that I don't like to have my voice recorded, I don't like to be on film. But I think there's something special happening with this program that the world didn't have access to see, and now these cameras entered this space and provided that access, and I think it's going to be impactful. Now, one of the things I'm interested in talking about is that there are a lot of people who, especially in this sort of current political moment, who are like in the mass incarceration, like they say all the things. And then when the rubber hits the road, they are not actually on board. And I've heard people participate in this logic that that when we talk about sort of college access behind bars, people are sort of like, well, people outside of prison don't even have access to a quality education. Right. So why would we double down on programs for people who are incarcerated when we actually haven't even fixed that for people who, quote, haven't done anything wrong. What do you say to those people? Well, I would say that, you know, we don't take the position that people, uh, whether incarcerated or not, shouldn't have access to college. We take the position that college should be accessible to everyone. We are engaged with educational access. It's just in the setting of a prison to show what educational access has the potential to do. And if I may engage your uh, way of describing it, just because one is wrong or something is not done effectively doesn't mean that we continue down that slippery slope of not fixing or engaging it in the best way possible. I believe that wherever quality education is accessible, there's going to be a benefit for society as a whole. 
Um, what about any misconceptions you think you encounter when people either see the film or people learn about the initiative? I, I have to imagine that there are people who come to this with sort of deep thoughts about uh, incarceration and, and education behind bars and have no, it's like not rooted in much, but they believe it very strongly, which is sort of how we feel about all the criminal justice stuff. Mm-hmm. What are some of the myths that you all have had to bust? Wow, it's really almost hard to know where to start with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we came in with a pretty open mind and not carry too much baggage with us. But, you know, probably the the central question the film raises, what is prison for and who has access to education? And just the very fact of who the students are, where they come from, what they're accomplishing in this program dispels many myths about where our intellectual capacity lies in our society, where the untapped potential is, and what people can accomplish when expectations are high. And so we have seen kind of the proof positive of what is wrong with this bigotry of low expectations that pervades so much of our education system and has really consigned particularly communities of color to schools that don't make it possible for them to achieve their potential. And that's what's happening in this program. And I think there's a lot of stigma around what people in prison can do or should be doing. And I think we're trying to engage that narrative. We're trying to have a conversation like Lynn just mentioned, what are prisons for, you know, and who should have access to education, as well as what can people do when they are provided with that access, regardless of where they're at. Uh, We in the film, of course, you'll see it and see it in more in full, but we have a scene where one of the people are saying, how are you getting this education and I have to pay for another person to get it? So what happens is once that person finds out more information about this is a privately funded program, uh, she meets people who are students in the program and see how uh, engaged and intelligent they are, there's a whole new view of what the potential people in prison uh, are capable of. So, I, I, again, i just like to, you know, reiterate, we want to change the narrative and we want to spark a discussion to kind of clear up some of the misconceptions that are around people uh, in education in this country. Can you help us understand what it was like to be a participant? Uh, it was very challenging. Um, it was transformational. Can you step back and can you just help us understand, like, what does that even mean? Like, what is like a program? Is it like a Monday through Friday thing? Is it okay, like a two cool. hours a day? Is it like... Yeah. The, so, like, what was it like to live in the program, whatever that means, and then sort of how did it feel? So, uh, we had a schedule that was essentially based on a professor's ability to come into the prison as well as teach on the campus because the same class that was taught on a college campus at Bard was taught in the prison at Easton where I took the, the program. Uh, so, that just basically translated into me taking maybe four classes in a week. And, of course, just like any student, I had books and materials to prepare. Um, I had a job while I was in prison in this program. Uh, So I had to, like, a lot time for work, study. Uh, I had to write papers by hand sometime because of the technological uh, restrictions that prison have, although we got to the point where we had uh, some type of uh, computer or some type of uh, word processing. But overall, it was a transformational process in the sense that I was able to read Walter Mosley or uh, any other of the notable authors and bring my experience to that work to understand my position in this world. So it gave me a new perspective on life. It allowed me to engage other people in the program in a way that wasn't allowed in prison. I won't say wasn't allowed, but wasn't necessarily practiced. You know, in the class, we had an open democratic space where everybody exchanged ideas, whether disagreeing or not. In the prison yard, as you hear, it could get a little uh, 
complicated if you kind of disagree with people. But nonetheless, we had a democratic environment. It re reconfigured what I thought of my peers and of myself. And what did you graduate with? A bachelor's degree in German studies. In German studies? Yeah, I can Deutsch. Ah, we'll come back to German. Um, <laughs> what was it like to bring cameras into a prison? You know, I, and I ask because uh, there's a set of people who sort of feel like that in some ways is sort of voyeurism, that it sort of feeds mm. the sensationalization of prisons and even right, the best absolutely. attempts actually like don't actually don't, don't sort of do it well. Then totally. there's the other side that says that so many people have no clue. They think they know. They don't know. Uh, but I'd love to know what was it like to bring uh, cameras in? Well, I'll answer that question, I think, in two ways. One is just the practical complexity of filming in maximum and medium security prisons is a daunting task and it's a serious uh, thing and we tried to be very small and as undisruptive and lean a group as we could, and we took it very, very seriously. I think we also uh, were very conscious of that notion of voyeurism is a great word, and we really wanted to make a serious film about education. So we approached the creative process of shooting the film that way, and in fact, for the first semester or so, we filmed almost exclusively on the school floor. Mm. And just to echo a little bit about or add to what Jewel was just saying, BPI operates like a, co- a full-blown barred college in the context of a prison. So professors come in and out. You have four classes a semester. You're writing your papers. You're It's very collegiate in feeling, even though you're on a school floor in a maximum security prison, which at Eastern Correctional Facility doesn't actually look that different from my public school 50 miles up the road. Other parts of the prison feel and are very different. And over the course of making the film, once we felt like we were anchored in an education space, Mm -hmm. we began to ask for permissions to spend time with the students in their cells, to look at the mess hall, to be in the yard, to actually create a little bit more of a world that they were getting this education in. So we were, A, conscious of exactly what you're saying, took it very seriously and tried to just expose our viewers to a different side of of prison. I think it was very collaborative with the students. Mm -hmm. So over time, you know, really sort of wrestling with what should we be looking at? What should the audience see to understand their experiences visually and orally and sort of in storytelling terms also? So, you know, we spent a lot of time when our cameras weren't there being with them, hanging out with them, talking with them, you know, in a pretty much private setting where we could have, you know, very honest, open conversations over many years to hear what their concerns were about how they had been represented, not specifically themselves personally, but people who were incarcerated in the media and a great deal of discussion about that and how to sort of, you know, push against that in the film, but not lose sight of the context for where the story was happening. What did you two learn in the process? I have to imagine that this was a new experience in so many ways that even the best of us who do work, uh, we come into places that are new to us and, you know, we learn. So I'd love to know, like, what you learned or how did you grow during the process? I am a totally different person than I was in 2012 when I first went into Eastern with Lynn to do that guest lecture. I think my understanding of where I fit in society race, poverty, education, politics, what I care about, what I'm interested in, how I see myself in the world and what my responsibility is as a active citizen and participant in the country are all totally different. Mm. I'm unrecognizable. I've learned so much and I feel very um, 
grateful for the opportunity of having to think about so many, I think, really important issues that our country faces through the lens of the students and the education they were getting in the setting they were getting it. Was it that you just hadn't seen anything like that before? Like, what was the sort of thing that pushed you, that sort of changed in you? It's so many different little impressions and then bigger, large, systemic impressions of just what I think is important and what, as a citizen, I should be active and thinking about and doing, which is different from what I understood in 2012. I I think the, the premise underlying your question, which is really the essential one for us, is... You know, I think we thought of ourselves, or I think I'll speak for myself, as open-minded, progressive, you know, with a deep understanding of history. We've made films about American history and all of its complexities for 30 years. But a lot of my understanding of mass incarceration and of the lack of access to education, the central themes of the film, were intellectual. I had not physically been inside a prison. I had not known people who had been incarcerated or their families. And I had not interacted and gotten to know and really care about and really connect with a lot of people who had had really, you know, um, inadequate educational backgrounds. I tended to move within a world that I was familiar with and comfortable in, and that's reflective of my background. And so it's sort of just, it was a gradual process of opening our eyes and making really deep connections with this really remarkable group of people and also the BPI staff and being just present and sort of open to what we're seeing and feeling and hearing was profound, just really life-altering, like Sarah said. And then, you know, there's also just on a deep human level, many of the people that we've gotten to know so well over the course of this project, these students who are now alums, you know, have experienced enormous challenges in their lives, and they shared that with us over time. And that was, as it has been on other projects as well, a very deep and sometimes angst-ridden and sometimes very inspiring experience for all of us. So we would often leave the facility just kind of overwhelmed emotionally, spiritually, philosophically, in every other way with what had been shared with us and what we felt now a huge responsibility to make a film that was worthy of the trust that they put in us so that we would sort of take their stories that they had worked with us to try to bring out, put them together in a film and share with the world. So it's been a lot to carry and incredible privilege. And also learned, I think, sometimes to actually get out of the way and let, I mean, I think the film, we hope, is really told and experienced through the lives of the students. I Just to echo what Lynn was saying, I think, you know, we have treaded in films about American history with a lens looking far away to try to understand the good and the bad and the ugly of what it means to be American and to make a film and live in a topic that is not only to your previous point, the politics around criminal justice reform and higher education in prison and a lot of the questions that the film raises really came to the front page of our newspapers while we were making the film. It was not the case when we started. PBS was like, you want to make a film about higher education in prison? Okay. But, you know, by 2016, they were like, holy smokes, you guys have been making a film about college education in prison. And now Obama's going to reintroduce Pell. And this is central to how we're going to think about criminal justice. And so we were making film with people about living, breathing American history. And we are interested in American history. So that was a totally unique and different, both intellectual and practical experience. Yeah. Oh, I still want to want throw one more thing. I think one thing that really over time and looking back has just been so you know, really inspired by the human capacity for resilience in some 
the most difficult of circumstances. Just this, you know, the spirit of all the students we've gotten to know, Jewel and everyone else, of just, you know, not being hopeless, being hopeful, and trying to make the best and look forward and use the educational opportunity to, you know, have optimism and energy and sort of joy of learning. It's incredibly inspiring. Joel, can you talk about the degree programs you had access to? So what does that even look like? Um, And then I'm interested in, you know, so few people who aren't incarcerated are actually prepared for college. Like, you know, aren't aren't ready. You know, you think about we're recording this in Baltimore where you all are doing the last screening. In Baltimore, the last NAEP score is it's like less than 15% of my eighth graders are proficient in literacy, right? So, like, you think about how many people who aren't incarcerated are not ready. And I have to imagine that that is mimicked inside. Mm -hmm. So we can offer the best of programs, but if people like don't have the skills to take advantage of them, then it doesn't seem like that is a win either. So love to talk about, I'm fascinated by German, how we got to Mm -hmm. German and sort of what you could have chosen if German wasn't it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what was it like to, to sort of be quote college ready or how did you experience that when we think about access? Well, I just want to address something you said. You know, uh, it's interesting to understand that people are coming out of high school not ready for college, regardless of if they're incarcerated or not. And that spills over into prison. Prison is a microcosm of our society. So I think it is a discussion that can be had about how can we provide the resources to communities and uh, build up the school system, because I feel personally the school systems failed me. Unlike others, I love school. You know, I had the tensions of my peers growing up in a lower class community uh, where I couldn't, you know, be popular because I love school. But nonetheless, I used to read the first part of a book, the first chapter, the middle chapter, the end chapter, and I was able to get through school. You know, people were like just pushing me through, you know. So, of course, I got caught up in a lifestyle that brought me to prison. But when I got into prison, I reevaluated myself and got back into education. But to answer your second question, what happened was in 1994, Clinton and that administration restricted Pell Grants for college for people in prison. So we had a void from like 1995 until 2001, 2002, when Bard uh, privately raised the money to bring the college college in the prison. I could tell you some stories about that void because there are many people in prison who want to engage themselves in society in a constructive way. They realize I've done wrong, but now it's about how do I correct that? And prison wasn't particularly after college was pulled out, wasn't providing that space for people. But nonetheless, when Bard came in, I had access to every class. Not, you know, I had to like get enough people to support it. My, you know, other Bard Uh, students, but I had access to every class that was in the Bard College catalog. As long as I could say we have, like, for example, German. The reason German came to us, I was in a class with German in translation, and I had the misfortune to criticize the translation. The other students in the class, we all had an impression like, wow, this is a bad translation. And the professor challenged us. So, From us identifying a translation as bad, we became committed and had to lobby for it to a degree for German classes to come into the prison. Uh, We got 12 students to show interest and to be dedicated for the four semesters. And from there, uh, it led to uh, Spanish classes for other students. 
uh, and Chinese classes for other students. So, you know, Bard students aren't only uh, speaking German, they're speaking Mandarin as well as uh, Cotillion, as well as regular Spanish. And if you didn't choose German, what, would, what do you think you would have studied? I couldn't imagine choosing anything else except German, except American studies, because I saw affinity between America and Germany in so many ways. I also saw a lot of dissimilarities. But for me, I was actually engaging Germany to understand America. Uh, and there's so many affinities, whether it's its past and its ability to uh, engage that past, whereas America hasn't. Or uh, the way in which World War II pushed Germany to be a model democracy, and we tout ourselves in America as being a model of democracy. So there were so many uh, things that I saw the affinity for that I, I was just naturally interested in it. But again, two things. One, anything that was in the Bard College catalog, as long as I could fulfill that credit requirement, I could take. But the most general uh, degrees that are issued are degrees in literature and arts and social studies. And math and math. Oh, now they that's yeah. right. Since I left, there's been a math track. And what can we talk about readiness? What about your peers in terms of readiness? You know, again, acknowledging that so many people who aren't incarcerated are not ready. Uh, so you think about uh, how that is mimicked inside where there are less access to remedial options. Yes. Uh, and, and you're right. You bring up a, a very uh, significant topic because I think this is one of the reasons why we as a student body relied on each other in order to make sure everyone made it through this program because you had people who... Uh, were very, they had to live experience to know what they were talking about, but they didn't know the conventions of grammar. They didn't know how to structure an uh, essay. And it takes a lot for a adult learner at many instances to, you know, humble themselves in a position to say, okay, I don't know this. So there was a part of this program that gave us a level of autonomy to engage each other and trust each other outside of the prison context to where we will have those type of conversations. We will have that level of engagement where I'm engaging with a person who has no idea about grammar, but could tell you about the Holocaust. So I had to sit with that person, have a one-on-one. We, you know, we were trained to be tutors in uh, the Bard program. To whereas I would sit with this person once a week to make sure that they're understanding the grammar conventions. And just one last matter about that, I think it was a matter of course effectiveness too, because there was a realization that people are coming to the Bard program are likely to not have had that conventional training. How do we provide that? And again, I think this is something that society is learning, rely on the students. So they relied on us who had it and were getting it easy to be able to translate that to people who weren't. Now, we've seen, especially in the past five years, um, I have seen so many documentaries and movies. And I'm like, I'm sort of tapped out about the police and about mass incarceration on film mm -hmm. just because I've seen a million. Mm -hmm. And the reason I get a little tapped out is that I'm a little unclear about what people want in the end. Mm -hmm. So there's one genre of these films that is sort of like, look how bad it is. And you're like, OK, but I didn't need a film to know how bad it was. Or there's a genre that sort of says, well, look at this bright spot in the middle of bed. And you're like, well, that's sort of interesting, too. And then there's a genre that says, like, this is awful and we can do something about it. Right. But there's so few of the this is awful. We can do something about it. So I'd love to know, like, what you what do you want people to do after they watch this? Yeah. Well, first of all, we really want people to watch it. Let's just say that <laughs> it's four hours. 
Total, um, so two, four hours two. total, two hours each night, and then it's streaming on PBS on the PBS app and on PBS.org for sixty days. And it sounds um, flip to say that, but first to watch the film because, as Jula said, we feel it is narrative changing, so we need to move forward. But first, we have to be having the right conversation. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've had a lot of coded conversations, we've had a lot of incomplete conversations, and people having opinions without having all the information. And we really feel like the film sort of informs an important conversation. And beyond that, this is so basic but extraordinarily important. If we are going to have prisons, which unfortunately we do for the time being, we hope that we will have many, many fewer people incarcerated. But in the meanwhile, while we are facing this problem, half the people who are incarcerated already have a GED. And they're not given any opportunity to do higher ed. A tiny fraction of people I think it's in the single digits who are actually getting degrees while incarcerated. And it wasn't like that a generation ago. To restore Pell Grants and to make education, higher education available to anyone who wants it and who has finished high school or has an equivalent is the first thing. And then to have those programs be rigorous, set a high standard, not to condescend to people and not to expect little of them, but to give them the opportunity to excel is hugely important. So we're sort of looking forward to saying that there will be likely much more opportunity made available, but we want to make sure it's done in the way that treats people with dignity and gives them opportunity. And then in addition, for anyone who is a graduate of an elite institution or any other university or college, to ask your alma mater, what are we doing in this space? What are we doing to make sure that, you know, if I give a check to my alma mater, where does that go? Rebuilding a building? you know, or a student center or another track, or are we actually making sure that education, which is so important, is made available to everybody? And so those are like, you know, short term, but we think really important and practical things that everybody should do. Right. I think if we're in a moment where there's federal legislation, right, there's the federal and the state here, and a lot of this is a state by state question. But if Pell is restored on a federal level, creates a kind of foundational support for higher education to go back into prison. And then these big, fancy, very wealthy private institutions need to figure out what their civic role is, both inside the prisons and I would say outside. We used to spend a lot more money on public education than we did on prisons. And now we spend a lot more money on prisons than we do on public education. Hopefully, the film will begin to actually do version C of what you're saying, which is to show something both good and bad that actually has some momentum behind it to make a change. Yeah, I feel like I want to and change the narrative. I think, you know, narrative change is very important. You have people who have misconceptions about what people incarcerated want, how they want to change their lives. I think people don't even realize that there's a large number of people in there who are seeking to do something constructive with themselves if they only had the opportunity. So I'm more concerned with people having this difficult conversation. I think the film is a excellent example of what transformation looks like. So I want to have a conversation with people, you know, because we made some progress with criminal justice reform, but we haven't really overcome the stigma of nonviolent versus violent or uh, lifer versus non-lifer. I just really feel like this film shows you what the potential of education can do. And I want to have that conversation so that people could kind of like, you know, start getting a more concrete understanding of what's happening with America's prisons. What have you found to be effective in the narrative change? So seeing it as a part of it, 
then people go home and you're not there, right? So you can't sort of work them through it because you're not there, I'm not there, we're not in the room. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what have you seen be effective when people sort of experience something like this and then they sort of go home back into the world? Uh, What can people do then? Well, I think, you know, what you're doing now with your podcast is, is, is relevant. You know, once people see me in the film, once they have interaction with Bard students, they start finding ways. And I think that's the thing about education. It's about your creativity, your innovativeness, your way of finding your niche on what you can do. Uh, like Brian Stevenson said, one of the most easiest ways is just to get proximate. Whether you're uh, teaching in prison or donating to a program or even writing somebody, the studies show one in two Americans have a person in their family or or a friend who has been either incarcerated on parole or probation. That's like half of America. So I just think we have to engage uh, this part of our society in a more clear and open way. And I think this film has that aspect of narrative change that allow people a foundation to say, okay, uh, I saw this film. I saw what was there. How can we have a discussion about what can be next or what could be possible or what I had uh, misunderstood about our prison system? And I will say, I mean, as we've been working on the film, Sarah and I, you know, people ask us, what are you working on? All different kinds of people. We were all over the place doing other projects and meeting people. And, you know, we get all kinds of reactions. Or sometimes people will say, oh, you know, well, I don't know how I feel about that. Or I'm not sure that people who have committed a certain kind of act should be giving access or any number of objections. that just knee-jerk, uninformed. And I say, well, take a look at our trailer or watch our highlight reel or, you know, just engage with the material. And I will say 100% of the people that have done that have come back and said, you changed my mind. So there is something powerful in just the voices of the students that haven't been heard. And it gives, uh, maybe it's virtual, but it's it's actual proximity to mm-hmm. um, a kind of, you know, real people. And I think that's the critical thing. We always talk about second chances, but how does that look? You know, what does that look like? How does it look from a prison context when a person is sitting in prison trying to struggle to understand whatever they've done in the past and who they are now and who they want to be in the future, this film captures all that. It shows what transformation looks like. So when we talk about second chances, we can have a reference to say, okay, this is what second chance looks like in this instance, and we need to continue to build on that. So where can people go to learn more about the Bar Prison Initiative and about the film? Go online to bar.edu BPI to learn more about BPI has been around for 20 years. It was founded in the wake of the Clinton crime bill by an undergraduate at Bard who at the time got really interested in what was happening at the prisons around the Hudson Valley. It has a consortium with 10 other states and other private institutions doing the same work more locally, Goucher, Yale, Notre Dame, Grinnell. So I think you can learn more about them that way. They have a huge network I mean, they function like a real college. They have 600 graduates out. Most of them are in New York. They're doing a lot of great work, and they're very supportive of each other and are just part of the larger Bard College community. You can go to pbs.org backslash college behind bars to learn more about us. Um, And then follow us on all the social media channels, um, none of which I really fully understand, but people are loving hashtag college behind bars, PBS, Twitter, and Instagram. Boom. Thanks Thank so much you. for joining us today on Pod Save That People. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thank you, good. Well, 
that's it thanks so much for tuning in to pod save the people this week tell your friends to check it out make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast whether it's apple Podcasts or somewhere else and we'll see you next week Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life.